We're in Job uh, chapter 42 on page 542, I think it was. And uh, before I begin, let's uh, pray, shall we? Father God, we uh, thank you once again uh, that we can come to your word this morning and that by your Holy Spirit we believe that you speak to us, you speak into our hearts and you bring about changed lives and changed attitudes and changed thoughts in our hearts. Lord, speak to us today and make us those new people you want us to be. Amen. Well, I... uh, uh, Love uh, films with sentimental endings. Um, I'm the one there blabbering my eyes out whilst the rest of my family uh, laugh at me. Toy Story 3 um, (laughs) had me on the floor in floods, which was terrible. But as we come to Job 42 and the ending of this book, as dramatic endings go, it's not much cop, is it? I mean, God says, uh, well, Job spoke good things about me. Uh, he gets him to pray for his friends. Uh, Job's brothers and sisters turn up. Where were they all this time? Uh, and gave him some kind of start-up loan. No credit crunch there. And then the Lord, in verse 12, says, Blessed, blessed, and then in verse 12, the Lord blessed the latter part of Job's life more than the first. So he got 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoga rocks, and 1,000 donkeys. That's precisely double what he had before in chapter 1. He also had seven new sons and three new daughters. That's the same number as he had before because there's only so many sons and daughters you can handle, in my experience. (laughs) And his daughters were beautiful, which must have been a worry, again, in my experience, uh, in the days before big high towers. And Job eventually died happily ever after, as it were, in his old age, surrounded by children, grandchildren, and great-grandchildren. Doesn't sound bad, does it? But as an ending, it all seems a little bit abrupt. You see, after 41 chapters of intense debate, passionate longing, uh, stormy interaction with God, God speaks, Job responds humbly, and the plot wraps itself up in just nine verses. Sacrifice, family support, loads of cattle, beautiful daughters, happily ever after. And yet it's important that we see that this ending does come at the end. Because although we've reached the end of this book, we haven't reached the end of our lives. In a couple of weeks' time, uh, myself and Sylvia and Alex and Miriam and Lucas and Katie the dog won't be here anymore. We'll be carrying on our lives in Wokingham. And you'll be carrying on your lives here in Norwich. And so the question we need to ask ourselves in the book of Job today is what can we apply for our everyday lives that are going to go on? What should we expect from today and tomorrow and the coming week and the coming year? And it's an important question because the answer will affect how we respond to the outcome. I mean, if we kind of expect the kind of blessing that Job enjoys in in chapter 1 and again in chapter 42 then we might end up feeling a little bit disappointed with our lives, mightn't we? We might wake up one morning and say, I don't think I have enough sheep. 
And yet one thing we must learn is that the five verses of the blessing in chapter 1 and the six verses of blessing in chapter 42 are, the only one, are only one aspect of Job's life. Taken in the full context of the 42 chapters of Job, those little verses of blessing are actually fairly inconsequential, aren't they? They're not what Job remembers for, is remembered for. Uh, neither is he remembered as a man with many sheep, cattle, and beautiful daughters. So if we ask what Job is remembered for, what would you say? I think many of us would say suffering, wouldn't we? But the New Testament gives a different answer. The New Testament remembers Job for his perseverance. See, Job is only mentioned once in the New Testament. It's in the book of James. As the apostle James writes to the church scattered throughout the world, and he tries to encourage them to endure suffering with patience. And he says to them in James chapter 5 and verse 1, he says, As you know, we consider blessed those who have persevered. You have heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. Well, if we can have the slide perhaps that's got that verse on there at the top. And we're going to start today by looking at Job's perseverance. His perseverance in warfare and waiting. But James doesn't finish there, does he? Because the book of Job is not actually all about Job at all. Because Job suffers because he is a believer. And he suffers as a believer. And because he's a suffering believer, then the central character and subject of the book of Job is not Job, but God, the God he worships. So whilst we shall start with Job and his perseverance, we then go on to talk about God and his compassion and mercy and the way in which he humbles us, accepts us, and blesses us in the end. So that's the outline of the sermon. It's stolen from Christopher Ash in the book that I told you about uh, right at the beginning of the series. Uh, do go and buy it. If you've enjoyed the series, if you've taken something from the series, go and buy it. It's on the bookstore at the back. I'm sure Jill would be delighted to sell you uh, a copy or two or three if you want to give them away as well. It's really worth reading. So let's have a look at Job's perseverance first. And firstly, his perseverance in warfare. You see, we're often led to believe, aren't we, that the Christian life should be full of peace, joy, and rich blessings. And of course, there's some truth in that. But we need to remember that Job was a believer. And we know from chapters 1 and 2 that none of what happened to Job would have happened if he had not been a believer. But nor should we think that a believer's life is all about suffering unending suffering. See, Job had both, didn't he? He had blessings and he had suffering. And I think for dramatic impact in this book, it's kind of separated. Uh, But in our lives, it's much more of a sort of mixed bag, isn't it? But the book of Job is brutally honest about the fact that we as believers should expect something of our daily life to be a battlefield. See, one of the things that I most uh, hold dear about you lot here at Trinity is seeing how many of you are just so pushing on as believers, persevering as believers. You know, don't you, that we've got characters here who, uh, instead of going into retirement, they end up uh, running charities. Some of, uh, some of you have been running book fairs this week. Uh, more quietly, perhaps, some of you insist in uh, charities that bring children from the developing world to this country for life-changing operations that they'd never be able to receive in their home country. There's some of you who've been involved in theological college, uh, education 
in other countries. We've got people who are getting stuck in uh, with the teenagers of this parish. We've got people who are getting stuck in with asylum seekers, hoping to learn English. We've got other people just quietly meeting with others, one-to-one, reading the Bible with them, encouraging them, bringing some to faith. It's so exciting when we hear that. There's others of you who uh, uh, spend hours and hours of your week going to visit elderly people or or people who are unwell, people who need pastoral care. There's others others of you who uh, are not married to Christians and yet you still struggle to get here every Sunday. You bring your children along on your own because you want them to hear about the Lord. There's those of you who faithfully teach our children week by week in the Sunday in the Sunday groups. And we as a family have been very grateful to you. There's others of you caring for your own elderly relatives in your own home or trying to keep them in their home. And we, again, know the pressures of some of that. And there's others of you who just pray and pray. So many of you are pressing on in your Christian life and responsibilities. You're taking them so seriously. And there's too many of you to mention. So I don't think we should be surprised one day when Satan turns up before God one day and says, I've been going to and froing around Norwich. And God says, ah, yes, Norwich. Have you considered my servants, whoever? And Satan tries on a line, well... They're just a believer because you're looking after them and, and they're happy eating pizza in front of the telly in Norwich. And God might give permission to Satan, mighty, to say, okay, go and test them. See what you can do with them. Let's see whether they are a true believer. And you see, the real inspiration to me is to see in the face of suffering how many of you have proved yourselves to be true believers. You have persevered in the heat of battle. I fear that many of you have persevered much better than I have done. You see, we must always remember why Job suffered. It was not in his case retributive. He was a righteous man. He didn't need to be punished. It was not in his case, I believe, corrective. There's no sense in that for Job, God was trying to make him a better man through all of this. No, I think Job suffered, in a sense, to prove in the heavenly throne room there that God's assessment of Job's character was right and that Satan's opinion was just slanderous lies. See, Job, in other words, suffered in order to prove that God was right. He suffered for the honour of God. And to my eyes, many of you are giving and have given great honour to God by the way that you have persevered in the face of the battle of suffering. And just as Job, in that way, foreshadowed, I think, Jesus through his perseverance, innocently enduring suffering for God's honour, then what you have been doing is reflecting Jesus through your perseverance in the face of suffering. So that's persevering in warfare, but there's also persevering in waiting. And by waiting, I don't mean a passive, fatalistic, whatever comes sort of waiting. I don't know if you heard it this week, but there's this really annoying program on Radio 4. 
Uh, and it was talking about religion and it was talking about the presence of God or, or what they saw as the absence of God. And they quoted R.S. Thomas, who was a poet and an Anglican priest um, in the last century, and he worked in these fairly dead churches in remote Welsh villages. And apparently he would go to these churches and spend a lot of time on his knees in prayer on his own in these empty churches. And he wrote this poem, it's called The Absence. It is this great absence that is like a presence that compels me to address it without hope of a reply. I'm not very good at reading poetry. But he was writing that about God's, the great absence. He addresses it without hope of a reply. It's a see. It strikes me as a kind of belief that says there's something up there. There is something up there. I must address it. But I have no hope of reply. There's something. It's unknown. It's impersonal. But Job's waiting was active. It was prayer-filled. It was passionate, yearning. It constantly called upon God for an answer. There was no English or even Welsh reserve in Job's waiting, was there? I mean, actually, when he was saying those things, he managed to say a lot of fairly unpleasant and wrong things about God in the midst of his suffering and pain. And yet, when it comes to Job 42 and verse 7, God says to Eliphaz, I'm angry with you and your two friends because you have not spoken of what is right about me, as my servant Job has. Now, we're not surprised that God wasn't very impressed with what Eliphaz and and the other two had to say. But was God right to say that Job had always spoken what was right about him? Well, technically, no. But I think that we've seen throughout this series that God does not take offence at our yearning for answers or our our demands for justice. Whilst Eliphaz and co. had their nice little religious system which provided them all the neat answers and, by the way, enabled them to judge Job wrongly, Whenever Job speaks about God, he longs to bring all of his confusion and his pain and his hopes for a different future to the living God. Precisely because Job believes in a personal God who's going to roll off his sleeves and get stuck in to sort out the mess. So Job waits, in agony sometimes, but he waits for God's response to his suffering. The friends had a religion, but they had no relationship with God's. Job's relationship with God is stormy, but it's real. And if there had been a prayer meeting, Job's friends wouldn't have bothered to go very much, would they? Because their God was already fitted into a particular size and shape. Yeah, they might have gone along and said a few formulaic prayers, but they already had the answers in their minds. But Job's experience on the rubbish heap was completely different, wasn't it? His experience was one long prayer meeting. Job was engaging with God himself. He must know what God thinks. He must know what God is going to do. And it's this longing for God's, which is the main reason why the Lord says Job has spoken rightly of him. God hears what he says. He filters out the wrong. He reads between the lines, and he looks at the faithfulness of Job's heart. And it's that same heart, which in verse 3 of chapter 42, confesses, surely I spoke of things I did not understand things too wonderful for me to know. Before my ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. You see, Job's passionate act of waiting is rewarded because Job believed in a personal God, a God whom he could clap eyes on, whom he could meet face to face. And Christians believe in that same personal God who is lovingly and deeply involved in our lives. 
So we should be saying when we're suffering to God, what's going on? What's happening here? What are you doing to resolve this situation? Precisely because we believe in a personal God who changes things. And if you're not a believer here this morning, then, and maybe one of your objections is about this God who doesn't seem to get involved in the suffering of the world, well, can I just encourage you to try Job's approach here? Tell God about it. Tell him what you think. And see what happens. So we learn from Job that we should expect our normal Christian lives to require us to persevere in warfare and in waiting, in struggle and in prayer. Now let's turn to the compassion and mercy of God. James says, You have seen what the Lord finally brought about. In other versions it says, You have seen the Lord's purpose. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. Once again, that comes as something of surprise, doesn't it? Since it's not what immediately springs to mind when we think about what God has done in the book of Job. After all, wasn't it God who gave Satan permission to destroy Job's possessions, kill his children, and ruin his health? Is that acting with compassion and mercy? I mean, even if Satan was the one who was actually doing the damage, at the other end of the leash we talked about last week is God. And in real life, the owners of dangerous animals can be fined or even put into prison if their animal causes harm to others. And if the police don't get you, then the front page of the Daily Mail surely will. Dangerous Leviathan, Maul's 50 teenagers, owner in court. And the book of Job never tries to dodge that problem. It just goes on telling us that, Job, that God is in control. God is sovereign. So how come James can draw this conclusion that God is full of compassion and mercy? Well, the connection there is in the phrase, you have seen what the Lord finally brought about. So what does the Lord finally bring about? Job 42 shows us three things. The first became necessary after the weeks of Job's suffering. Job had come close on a number of occasions to forgetting who he was in relation to God, hadn't he? In a sense, he needed to be humbled a little bit. And that was the effect that God's two speeches, we looked at last week, out of the storm, had on him. So in 40, verse uh, 4, Job says, responds to God, I'm unworthy. How can I reply to you? Again, in chapter 42, in verse 6, and Job's word, Job says, therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. I think the meaning there is more that he debases himself, he humbles himself. He realizes that he has been presumptuous, speaking of things he didn't really understand. And now that God has spoken, he is silenced and has nothing more to say. Now, I'm big fish on Friday nights, and that's uh, another thing that I love doing uh, during the course of my time here at Trinity, is big fish on Friday nights. And we've been looking at self-image during the course of this term. Um, and we were talking on Friday night about how it's not good to have a high self-image where you think everybody else is rubbish. Nor is it good to have a low self-image where we think everybody else is so much better than ourselves. So how can it be good that Job makes jo- uh, a God makes Job feel that he despises himself and must cover himself in dust and ashes? Well, we're cleverer than that in Big Fish because we know that the only self-image that is right is our self-image in relation to God. You see, in rediscovering his humility, Job rediscovers his relationship with God. 
And in our relationship with God, it is always right for us to learn how small we are in the presence of the greatness of the living God. And perhaps we should remember that the next time we come to our prayers. Because sometimes we pray for success, don't we? We pray that Eloise has success on the exams and Bob gets another promotion at work. We pray that Judy becomes the astronaut she always wanted to be. And then when we get the answers, we write it up in a Christmas letter we can send to all our friends. And won't that be good? Sometimes we desire the success and achievement more than we desire a right relationship with God. See, uh, come chapter 42, Job didn't find his self-esteem in his riches or number of cattle he had or his business acumen. At that point in time, he had none of those things. But he did have something much more valuable, which is a right relationship with God. And if there's one thing that I would like you to take away from the last four years of my preaching here at Holy Trinity, it is this, that you can have a right relationship with God. And it begins with a little bit of humility. It begins with a little bit of humility that admits we haven't got it all right. We can't save ourselves. And just as Job needed to offer sacrifice on behalf of, our friend, of his friends in this chapter, we need to reach out to Jesus, who sacrificed himself on our behalf. We need to lean on Jesus and on him alone. And it's a mark of God's mercy and compassion, I think, that he reminds us of that sometimes. So having been humbled, Job now knows God's acceptance in three ways. Firstly, in verse 7, he says that Job has spoken rightly of him when his friends have not. Secondly, three times in verses 7 and 8, he calls Job my servant, which is exactly what he did in chapter 1 and 2. And it's a title of great dignity and honor, normally reserved for people like Moses and the prophets. It's a great honor to be called God's servant. I want to be God's servant, don't you? And thirdly, in a wrap over the knuckles for his friends, they're told that there's no need for them to pray for Job. In fact, Job is going to pray for them. You see, they had thought that Job was the sinner. And yet God says, no, Job's prayers are going to be powerful and effective. He is a righteous man. And his friends must have been gutted. But in chapter 29, Job craved the days when I was in my prime, he says, when God's intimate friendship blessed my house. That's what Job missed in chapter 29. And here in chapter 42, he's given three reasons why he is back in that position again. He is accepted, he is loved, and he is vindicated by God. So God has brought about Job's humility and his acceptance. And finally, God blesses Job. The end comes at the end. More sheep, more cattle, more sons and daughters. He gets to celebrate with large banquets in verse 11, just as he did back in uh, uh, verse 4, chapter 1. And and, uh, Job comes back to life, in a sense. He lives for many years and dies a happy man. But let us just think and note what comes first. What comes first is Job's relationship with God's. That is what's restored first. It's only after he has met with God, been humbled and been accepted into a restored relationship with God, that the blessings are allowed to flow. And that's important because it proves that Job was a true believer. It wasn't that his fortunes were suddenly restored and so he decided God wasn't so bad after all. 
No, Job was consistent all the way through. Even at the height of his suffering, he refused to condemn God despite all of his pain. He wasn't a fair-rever believer, was he? Nor is there any implication here that this blessing was some kind of reward for the suffering that Job had endured. In fact, it's, it, the fact that it's double strongly points to the fact that this is just simply God in his grace pouring out all this undeserved blessing upon God, upon Job. But the most important thing about the blessing is that it happens right at the end. And that's something that we should expect as Christians too. For the last one and a half years, it seems like a long time, Sylvia and I have been praying that wherever we end up living and working would be a real blessing for every single individual member of our family. That's been our prayer for the last one and a half years. And we had a number of false starts, getting excited about different places. But we truly believe that the job where we're going to go in Wokeham has every potential to answer that prayer in all kinds of surprising ways. And we really thank God for that and the blessings that we believe are going to come to us. But the reality is that Wokeham is not the end for us. And that no matter what blessings come our way uh, in Wokeham, there will also be more suffering and struggle and waiting and hard work and prayer. Because that's the reality of our Christian lives, isn't it? Whatever blessings we do receive here and now on this earth are but a tiny foretaste of what is to come, which will come at the end. See, Job 42, I think, anticipates the return of the Lord Jesus. When a normal Christian life of needing to persevere in warfare and persevere in waiting will come to an end. And the blessings of God will be poured out on every believer in such abundance that even Job's riches will appear mean in comparison. But that all comes at the end. You see, the story of Job's perseverance, I think, is ultimately fulfilled in Jesus. Satan takes Jesus, doesn't he? And he focuses his attack on Jesus from Herod's attempt to have him slaughtered as a toddler, through the temptations in the wilderness, through the, through the temptation, discouragement, loneliness, betrayal, and misunderstanding that he faced throughout his public ministry, and finally, the agony of the cross. And through it all, Jesus was in constant, sometimes agonizing contact with his heavenly Father. So it shouldn't surprise us, as believers called to walk in the footsteps of Jesus, that suffering sometimes comes our way. Jesus once said to Simon Peter, the apostle, he said, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat, but I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fall. Not notice that Simon would be spared from any suffering. Rather, we expected that Satan's request would be granted, just as it had been for Job. But he prayed that Peter might have the faith to endure it and bring honor to God by his perseverance. Knowing that, many, many years later, after Peter had experienced all kinds of suffering and trials, I wonder whether Peter was disappointed with his life. Had it all been a disappointment? So much suffering, so much pain, that's not what he expected. Well, in 1 Peter, verse, uh, chapter 4, verses 12 to 13, Peter wrote this to his friends. He says, Do not be surprised at the painful trial you are suffering, as though something strange was happening to you. But rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ, 
He doesn't sound very disappointed, does he? He doesn't sound very disappointed. And I believe his suffering and the suffering that you have persevered in is what brings honour to God. And the blessing comes at the end. Let's pray. Lord, these are not light and easy themes. Many of us have suffered very, very real pain over the, over the last year, two years, or for much, much longer. And yet, Lord, we know that somehow, in some curious understand, a way that we don't fully understand, your hand is in it all, Lord. You are sovereign and in control. You are looking over us and caring for us and watching over us. You are merciful and compassionate, even through it all, through the storm. Lord, we thank you for your love that sent Jesus Christ into this world to face some of the storms that we face. We thank you, Lord, that Jesus was prepared to be tempted by Satan, prepared to be in danger, to be under ridicule, to be slandered, to face physical violence and pain, to face death on the cross. Thank you, Lord, he rose again. Thank you, Lord, that he did that for us, that we may enjoy a new relationship with you. Humbled, yes, humbled in the right way, knowing that we are loved and accepted and adopted into your family. Amen.